You're listening to Diversity Matters, a podcast about raising awareness and education through thought-provoking discussion, opinions, experiences, and inspirational stories from the complex world of equity, diversity, and inclusion. Here's your host, Mike Seeley. Hello, and welcome to the Diversity Matters podcast show. This is the 12th and final episode of my first season, And given the title of the podcast series, I thought what better than to round off the first season by talking about why diversity matters. So to do this, I have invited a special guest today who I describe as a real expert and a remarkable powerhouse of a woman. Professor Funke Abimbola, MBE, is a lawyer, inclusive business leader, and DEI consultant. She currently works as a London-based partner at a global organizational consultancy focusing on delivering diversity, equity, and inclusion solutions to clients across Europe, Middle East, and Africa region. Her professional experience spans 20 years, with a first career as a corporate lawyer in the UK and subsequent careers in C-suite leadership roles within global pharmaceutical companies, alongside providing DEI expertise. For many years, she worked as a senior leader for Roche, the world's largest biotech company, serving in a range of different roles, including the role of general counsel and head of financial compliance. Immediately prior to her current role, she ran her own DEI consultancy during the pandemic, developing an impressive global list over a two-year period, amongst which were several FTSE and NASDAQ-listed companies. Funke's expertise and leadership encompass a wide range of sectors, ranging from biotech, pharmaceuticals, healthcare and life sciences, technology, not-for-profit, and manufacturing to professional services, education, financial services, retail, and media. She has extensive non-executive director experience and has served on the board of a fully listed company. A Nigerian-born naturalized Brit, Funke has dual Nigerian and British citizenship, The impact of her inclusive leadership and DEI work has been recognised by the UK's Prime Minister and the Financial Times. She was awarded an MBE in the Queen's 2017 Birthday Honours List for Services to Diversity and Young People. The University of Hertfordshire and the University of Kent have both awarded her honorary doctorates to recognise the impact of her leadership and her alma mater, Newcastle University, appointed her as Professor of Practice for the DEI efforts, impact and contributions. She is also the proud mother of a 20-year-old son who is a future software engineer studying computer science at university. Together, they host a global podcast series called The Power of Privilege and Allyship, showcasing exceptional role models who have used their privilege to maximize the impact of their allyship to transform lives. Funke, welcome to Diversity Matters. Thank you so much, Mike. I'm thrilled to be here. Now, that was a fairly long introduction, but it just highlights how much you've achieved so far in your career. But before we get into why diversity matters, I want to first start by understanding why you chose to leave the law industry. Yes, that's a a question I get asked so many times, uh, Mike. You won't be surprised to hear. So I've been practicing law in, in various guises for well over 20 years at the point where I decided to leave finally. And 
it's an interesting thing that happens to all lawyers. Uh, without exception, I know a lot of lawyers. You get to about 10 years of qualification and you sort of start thinking, is this it? You know, because at that stage, you've uh, experienced probably every type of transaction. If you were a corporate lawyer, like I was, um, I genuinely experienced every single type of corporate deal you could imagine. And it was becoming very repetitive. I was seeing that with my friends who were litigators, who were in personal injury, who were in trusts and, you know, all the different areas. And then you have a decision to make. You decide, do I carry on and accept that, you know, for the next 30, 40 years, this is it? Or do I try and slightly reinvent myself and carry on with the legal track, but in different ways? So I did that. At 12 years qualified, I moved into industry. So I'd been in private practice for 12 years. I thought, yes, if I go into industry as a lawyer, I'll be able to keep my legal career going. And it's a completely different way of practicing law when you work in-house, as we call it. As soon as I joined uh, the organization I joined in-house, of course, I started to then move away from legal practice because, of course, I was now working in industry. So I wanted to make the most of the opportunities to become a commercial leader. So I did things like uh, Lean Six Sigma training. I led projects. I, you know, was uh, running all sorts of operational type things. I was parachuted in on a market access project with a, a business unit to lead that and turn that around. I got involved in Brexit uh, issues and led the operations oh. for Brexit, which was a huge task for that company at the time, the implications. And then you get to the end of that and think, oh, what's next? You know, I'm not doing so much legal practice and I want to go into a pure business role. The problem I had, and this is what happens sometimes when you can be too successful and then have your employer say, oh, we'd love you to go to, you know, the emerging markets. You know, you speak a Nigerian language fluently. Uh, why don't you go there for a bit? And there's family considerations uh, to think about. Um, so cutting a long story short, round about 20 years uh, PQE, post-qualification experience, I realized I'd really had sort of maxed out completely every ounce of what I could get out of law. <laughs> and I wanted to focus exclusively on diversity, equity and inclusion yeah. in my day job. And that also led you to starting your own consultancy. It did. Uh, tell me a little bit, yeah, tell me a little bit more about that because it was during the pandemic, I understand. It was, Mike. And again, I hadn't planned this at all. I mean, if anyone had said that I could even run my own business, I would have laughed at them at the time. But what happened was I was actually on study leave from my uh, a job, another legal uh, job that I took on in, in global pharmaceuticals. And uh, and then George Floyd was, was murdered. Mm. Uh, and that coincided with the beginning of my study leave. I was going to be studying online at Wharton Business School anyway. But literally the same week was when lockdown happened and my son was sent home from school. And so, you know, lots of things then started to happen after that. My whole network reached out to me en masse because I developed a, a very strong uh, reputation for being, being able to drive change uh, as a volunteer. I'd never charged for my time. I'd never charged for my services, but I'd been recognized at very senior levels, you know, with awards, Queen's Honours and, and things like that for the impact I was able to have to drive inclusive leadership change and improve diversity. 
And so I was known to everyone, you know, CEOs, I was known to managing partners in law firms, um, global pharma and also global law firms. And I remember sitting there panicking. My son was then only 17 and in sixth form. And he's far more naturally entrepreneurial than I am. I mean, he's a future tech CEO without any, any shadow of a doubt. And I was sitting there panicking. Can you imagine, Mike? by the deluge of people asking yeah. for my day rate and all these highly commercial terms wow. that I'd never had to think about. And he said, mum, I kind of think we've got a business here, you know, like <laughs> you might want to, you know, That's I can a help smart you. smart young man. <laughs> uh, and he helped me. He helped me, you know, he was helping me with all the online delivery. And I built up a team of freelancers who were all students that I'd worked with in, in various guises. And I had my team and we, we ran a six-figure business during lockdown. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> so tell me of course you had built up you know a really good network through the previous roles that you had done and of course the George Floyd you know we all remember the George Floyd incident but one of the things I specifically remember was the outpouring of messages that came on places like LinkedIn and particularly messages from companies who were really stating their position and how they felt about it and I can only imagine there are probably a lot of companies that were wondering, what do we do here? How do we manage this going forward? And that's why they would reach out to you for that level of knowledge and expertise. What types of challenges were you having to solve on behalf of those companies that were, were crying out for help? Yes, that's a great question, Mike. So the, the main focus was around race diversity, given what had happened to George Floyd. And the challenges were around middle management. It was what was happening with a lot of companies and still does is the diversity piece, you know, getting, getting diverse talent in through the door was working fairly well across most industries. I mean, there are still many exceptions. But there was no progression uh, into middle management. And then, of course, then you don't have the senior uh, management. So that was, you know, addressing the middle, as, as we often say, you know, when we're looking at research pieces around this, was the main focus. Really looking at the data, you know, I'd, I'd look, I'd work with the organization and say, you know, what's the data that you've got? If not, we'd send out a survey that I'd design. I start with the data-driven approach. Let's know what problem we're trying to solve and the data very quickly would throw up, well, what aspect of it uh, was a problem? What is it that's the blocker? We'd do engagement surveys as well where that would be anonymous and staff would be able to share specific you know, information around what had happened. Uh, maybe they perceived a manager had actually stopped their promotion in some way mm. um, and things like that. So it was essentially the middle that was the problem. Yeah. And um, senior leadership then wasn't uh, diverse uh, at all in most places. And that was what I tended to work on. I guess a lot of people will say that the, je- the death of George Floyd was something that happened in society and, and happened in America, but there wasn't too many challenges and issues in the corporate world. So let's get on to the subject of why diversity matters. Mm. Let me know what your your thoughts, opinions, and expert opinions are uh, on that yes. question. I love answering this question because it always leads me to use and develop Verna Meyer's dance analogy that she uses around 
diversity. So until recently, Verna was uh, the VP of inclusion at Netflix. She's a very well-known thought leader in the DEI space. And she defined diversity as being invited to the party and inclusion as being asked to dance. And we all know this. We've you know seen mm-hmm. it on LinkedIn, etc. I then have this third stage, which is belonging, which is dancing as if nobody is watching you. <laughs> and then the critical final stage is equity, which is being on the party planning team. And the way I describe it is without diversity, if you're not invited to the party, then you can't be asked to dance. Mm-hmm. You can't dance as if no one is watching you and you certainly won't make it onto the party planning team. So it does start with diversity. It starts with getting the diverse talent in, in through the door, being invited to the party in the first place. Without that, you haven't got a hope of achieving the end game, which is actually equity. It's getting that decision-making influence, being more representative um, of, of society that we, you know, sort of work and, and, and live and operate within. But it starts with diversity. And that, for me, is why diversity matters. Now, most companies have probably focused on bringing in diverse talent. Some have struggled with it. Some who have managed to bring the talent in have had real challenges longer term in terms of retention, keeping people in there. Why do you think that the retention level is so low? I mean, people sometimes come into an organization and and leave within six months. Yes. So what a lot of the data shows is that to really sustain uh, an inclusive working environment where people will stay, you need to address both the systemic aspects of what's going on, as well as behaviours that may not be conducive. So, you know, when you're looking at behaviours, you need to develop inclusive leaders. And there's specific traits and competencies uh, that a lot of data suggests inclusive leaders have, and those can be taught. You know, you can run programmes. In fact, I run several of them where you can train leaders to be more inclusive, building up these traits and competencies so that they can actually know how to manage and lead diverse teams. That does not work, though, if you don't address the systemic challenges as well. Policies, processes, you know, recruitment um, policies, promotion policies, what data do you decide you're looking at for promotion? What are the criteria? These are all the policy, you know, this is all the process systemic stuff, which you could have great inclusive leaders whose efforts are then completely thwarted by the fact that you've not actually looked at the systemic aspects to make sure that that's inclusive as well. So the two need to be working hand in hand consistently for that change to be sustainable. And it's either one or both of those two that will be failing when you're getting diverse talent in. If you don't address the inclusive systems and behaviours, then they will leave and people do leave. And do you think, you know, George Floyd... The murder of George Floyd took place just over three years ago now. There has been a lot of new roles with people leading DNI and uh, functions, like myself. But what we're also beginning to see in some aspects is it appears that some people are growing very tired of the DE&I topic, you know, to the point where they believe that now it's been forced upon them, it's been rammed down their throats and they've had enough. What do you say to that? That's absolutely right. I mean, America 
America dominates global culture in so many ways. And certainly when it comes to DEI, America really does. What happens in America ultimately ends up happening in, in Europe and, and the rest of the developed world, and sometimes parts of the developing world, frankly, as well. And we're definitely seeing that. We're definitely seeing across some states in America, um, you know, moves to ban critical race theory. You know, I was talking to someone yesterday who was having to completely change the course that they teach at that specific uh, U.S. college to remove uh, aspects of, you know, black history and so on. Because in that particular state, the governor, and I won't name the state, but I think we both know which state we're talking Mm -hmm. about, had decided that that was no longer something that was beneficial. So we're getting this in America, not across all states, but there's enough of groundswell for it to be a problem. And unfortunately, when people feel as if they've been railroaded into trying to drive change or they feel as if they might be losing out and, you know, the the DEI program has not been run in an inclusive manner, which itself has to happen not to alienate the majority groups, they will reject the whole thing. You know, it's not a case of, well, I'll only, you know, only so far as it affects this aspect of DEI. They'll think the whole thing is not for them. And I've had conversations with senior leaders who have said that to me, you know. Um, So that's a a common phenomenon that we are seeing. And Europe is now beginning slowly to have the same sort of uh, anti-woke backlash. I mean, the way the word woke has been misused is is very upsetting. But there is definitely an anti-woke movement that we're trying to mitigate um, in the middle of all of this. Because the problem, Mike, is yeah. there still are underlying issues in corporates, you know, irrespective yes, of what <laughs> what governors may be doing in America. You know, I hear from people every day who are, are suffering in various ways because of mistreatment or they're being overlooked for promotion or there's racism, sexism, mm. you know, whatever it might be. So that's still ongoing. We still need to address that. I mean, there's still a need to address that. I often wonder when people hear the word diversity, equity and inclusion, and often some people think it it's a dirty word, but I think the first place they go to around DE&I is race and then possibly gender. But we know that diversity, equity and inclusion is multidimensional. You know, it is race, it is gender, it's sexual orientation, it's religion. You know, it's so many different things that have different impacts and experiences on on many different people, including even if you are white male and middle-aged, you know, you are part of that whole diverse community. So how do we begin to get more people to embrace diversity in more of a positive and beneficial light? Yeah, that's a really great question. And because my my work specifically, the geography I, I tend to work in is Europe, Middle East and Africa, um, and I'm of Nigerian heritage. I, I was born in Nigeria and I speak uh, a Nigerian language fluently and I go back often. In fact, I'm going to Nigeria in a few days mm. for yet another holiday. I think it's very important that we define success um, specifically to that particular region or country. I mean, I'll give you an example. Mm. We've got a client who's looking at a DEI initiative in sub-Saharan Africa. The issue there is not, um, it's not race, it's not color. Like everyone's the same color, right? You know, it's issues around the resentment that is often felt when a non, you know, someone who's not black, so an expatriate comes in and is the senior leader or the general manager or MD when there might be local, very well educated, um, candidates, 
some of whom may have studied abroad, and but you know that shouldn't really be a, a barrier to entry. And there's a lot of resentment within this specific organisation around that alone, and that has led to all sorts of issues. So that's a very different problem, right, to what might be typical, say, in Europe. And even saying Europe, it depends which country. Yes. You know, in countries like France, we have to be very careful how we collect data. In fact, I was talking to a, a client about that just yesterday, that in terms of data collection, we need to be very, very careful how we get the data we need because there's specific protections that apply somewhere like France that don't apply, say, in Germany or, you know, the Czech Republic or, or somewhere else in Europe. So looking at the historical context is also very important as well. Mm. There are certain words. We can't use the word allyship in Germany, for example, um, because of the history. The allies mean something completely yes. different wow. in Germany. So we've had to use words like champion, you know, etc. So success looks very different depending on where you are. And I think once we can define what success looks like in each country, in each company, then you can bring people around a lot more. The other thing, Mike, that's very important, and in fact, a friend of mine posted about this on LinkedIn this morning and I commented back, is that it's got to be a win for the individual leader who you're mm -hmm. relying on to play their part. If they feel in any way, shape or form that they're going to be losing out, they will not do it. I mean, they will do it because they're forced to for a period of time, but it won't be sustainable. And we're all selfish creatures. We don't do anything unless there's a, something in it for no. us. None of us do. Any People who claim to be selfless, they're still getting something out of what they're doing. Mm -hmm. And that's also very, very important because to sustain the change, that individual leader needs to believe that they actually are going to win out of it. Whatever that looks like for them, their team, them as an individual, that's got to be their driver. Otherwise, they won't be able to sustain the inclusive leadership style. Now, do you think that most leaders then, when they are looking to see what they're going to get out of it, are looking more from a commercial aspect, a return on investment, which you know, you're not going to see overnight, right? But it appears that a lot of leaders will get into the DNI space if they can see the commercial benefits like immediately. I mean, you think about most business leaders, they work in what I'd describe as, you know, the short term. The short term maybe a twelve month window, because twelve months is where you have, you know, your business targets laid out and, and within that period of time, you know, they are looking to achieve those goals, be it revenue you know, or whatever. So when it comes to DNI and DNI practices, some of the benefits or the returns may not be seen for a much longer period of time. Now, does something like that put people off? Do they think, well, that's way far out and at the moment I'm I'm focused on the numbers and the things I'm immediately measured on? Um, and is that maybe the reason why there is not as much effort and time spent in the DNI space? I think the answer to that is, yes, that certainly can be the case. And that's why it's so important that each leader is coached, you know, really gets in quite intensive coaching around what their barriers might be to driving this change. What are they afraid of? You know, what is the narrative that they have in their mind around certain groups? Uh, becoming an inclusive leader starts with, well, becoming a leader full stop starts with mm -hmm. self-awareness. And, you know, that's something I spend a lot of time with senior leaders 
you know, just getting to the bottom of what are they afraid of? What do they see as the barriers to driving this forward? Very important that we break down those barriers and, and, and address them and find ways of mitigating them. The other thing is that for some, it will be commercial success that will drive mm. them. Absolutely. I mean, and there's no shame in that, right? I mean, no. most of us like money. You know, if you're a company that's a for-profit company, that's your bottom line. You've got Absolutely. shareholders need to appease. There's no shame in wanting money to to be, you know, the, <laughs> the balance sheet to balance at the end of the financial year, right? But for others, it's more of a moral case. You know, mm. I had a CEO last week who whose sole reason for driving the DEI agenda is his daughter. He said until they had a daughter, he was blissfully unaware. He said knowingly actually chose not to address the moment they had a daughter. And she's, you know, young. She's not started school yet, this daughter, by the way. Mm. But he keeps thinking, what kind of world are we building for for, for girls? Yeah. Um, you know, I had another client whose son was um, disabled um, through a, a tragically had a, mm. a sporting accident. That then became a very strong impetus for him to start looking at disability, physical disability specifically. He's now one of the strongest advocates driving government policy on top of his day job. So for some people, it will be all about the money. For others, it will be moral, moral case. Yeah. And for some, it will be both. You know, they yeah. also happen to be commercial leaders as well, by the way, Mike. Yeah. So um, yeah. you might have to have a, a combination of both sometimes as well. Mm. And sometimes it's personal, right? There's something yes. that triggers that change, you know, in a leader, you know, in, the, in an individual. And you're absolutely yes. right when you, you talk about, you know, him having a girl, then we, we look at some of the gender challenges that exist out there and women in more senior leadership positions being an issue today. Neurodiversity and people who may have ADHD or autism and looking at how we can best support their needs going forward you know if you have a child and i uh, recently recorded uh, a guest for a season two show coming out whose child is autistic she's beginning to think about well what kind of world will my son be in 10 or 15 years time you know what will it be like for him so she's now looking to see what she can do to help other people in that space okay so we spent time talking about the corporate space I don't know how much work you do in society. I know that you've worked with like, the government and governments, for example. How different is that space to the corporate world? Very, very different. Very different. Um, I do a lot of um, social diversity focus work, absolutely. And it's um, focused specifically on young people at this stage. I mean, in previous phases of my career it's been the legal profession as a whole and you know but I've built up the groundswell there and handed over the work to my mentees who are all happily carrying on uh, without me and doing fantastic work uh, which is great but I focus on young people outside of my day job and I do that through a, a charity called Speakers for Schools that I've been involved with as a senior volunteer for 10 years as a, an inspirational speaker and I was uh, instrumental in the work experience scheme, the national work experience scheme that we launched um, a few months ago now. I played a really critical part in the concept of that logistics, frameworks, making it happen, getting corporates to sign up, etc. 
So that keeps me very busy. Um, mm-hmm. I, you know, I have a finite amount of time that I can spare mm-hmm. for these things. So I make sure that every week, whatever time I have, I, I, I use that time well outside of my day job. The other thing that keeps me very busy is a medical scholarship scheme that I founded um, in 2016 uh, to mm. honour my father, who very sadly uh, passed away in 2012, very suddenly, of liver cancer. He was a doctor. Uh, my whole family are medical, by the way. I'm mm. the only one who didn't do oh, wow. medicine. The whole family, yeah, everybody <laughs> is You a went law. <laughs> I went to law, which was considered yeah. very rebellious at yeah. the time, I can tell you. And then within the context of the Nigerian family, you know, it's very rare to go against what your parents want you mm. to do. And uh, so to honour my father, I came up with this idea of supporting uh, minority ethnic uh, medical students at UK medical schools who face all sorts of additional challenges on top of uh, just being a medical student in itself. You know, getting into med school is tough, etc. And we now have almost 60 bursaries that we've awarded. Half of them are junior doctors. Um, It's uh, minority ethnic in the very broadest sense of the word. Mm. So we've got someone who's uh, Korean, Japanese. We've got, you know, um, Sikh, uh, one of our uh, scholars wears a hijab. Uh, we've got lots mm. of Nigerian uh, scholars. Uh, we've got a wonderful Jamaican uh, winner who just is exceptional. He'll be very, very, he'll know exactly who he is when he <laughs> listens to this. Uh, exceptional young man. Uh, quite a few other West Indian heritage mm. uh, winners as well, but very broad within what we mean by minority ethnic, lots yeah. of Indian heritage also uh, across all religions, you know, et cetera. But you just, you need to be a visible minority because, you know, yeah. you face um, significant disadvantages if you're a visible minority. And they also have to be giving back to society in a sustainable way. And boy, are they, you know, running tech startups on top of medical school oh. and fundraising. Just thinking when I was your age, at, you know, studying law, <laughs> you know, if I got to lectures on time, that was a good start to the day. You know, it's like, yeah. um, so I'm very proud of them all. And, you know, it's a wonderful, wonderful thing uh, to be driving, you know, medical education policy as well through mm. that work. It's led to me influencing um, British Medical Association stuff. And my two younger siblings, who are both surprise, surprise doctors, immediately jumped to support when I came up Mm. with the idea and set it up. So they're very involved also uh, with mentoring and publicity and things. So that keeps me very busy for the young people. I'm sure it does. Um, (laughs) And I love it. I really enjoy it. That's amazing. I mean, what a foundation, giving opportunities to you know, people with ethnic backgrounds who may have struggled to get into med school or even once they've got in, you know, just navigating through there, I can only assume would be would be tough in, in that world. So that's fantastic. And hopefully what that will do is it will allow people coming up behind them to aspire to becoming doctors, nurses, etc. Now, you would also mention you do a lot of work with young people. And I believe that this is one of the things that led to you receiving an MBE, which is incredible. Tell me a little bit about that. Um, when did you hear about that? How, oh, how did you feel? Mike, honestly, I still, to this day, find it very hard to believe. I mean, it was six years ago now. So what happens is you receive a letter. You get a letter from the Cabinet Office about six weeks before the list is announced. Hmm. This letter arrived on the 5th of May, 2017. I remember it was a Saturday morning, (laughs) horrible weather. 
And it's an official looking letter. You know, it looks like a tax bill. You know, when the address <laughs> yeah. is in a clear, the, the, yeah. the section with the address window. is clear. Exactly, yeah. clear window. And it has urgent stamped on it uh, for addressee only. I thought, oh my goodness. <laughs> Because that week at work, we'd had lots of pensions um, seminars and I fell within a bracket that was going to have to, you know, potentially pay more tax or there was some kind of tax change. So I was convinced it was a tax demand. Absolutely. In fact, <laughs> I was so sure that I gave the letter unopened to my son. I said, you open it because I think, you know, this is probably going to be from the revenue and I owe a lot of money. And he opened the letter and, and read it and started screaming. So I thought, not only do I owe a lot of money, but I'm going to prison. <laughs> I was honestly, Mike, I was shaking. And he went, no, no, mom. Oh, my goodness. It's not nothing to do with prison or tax. You know, he said, it's a letter from um, the prime minister asking for your consent. I mean, I just sort of, it was so completely outside of, I, I just couldn't believe it. Mm. You know, I say to people, and I think people do believe me because I'm genuinely surprised by all these awards mm. and things. You know, I genuinely set out to redress balances here to, you know, <laughs> drive equity to, you know, I work for a cause and not the applause. Yeah. And, and yes, it was a letter from the cabinet office from the prime minister asking for my consent to deliver my name to the queen to, you know, if I could, you know, to ask her if, um, she'd be favoured. I mean, it's very grand language. I, I've got the copy of the letter somewhere. <laughs> and then you have to consent. So I still wasn't, I, I genuinely, I wasn't sure if it was actually the right from Kevin Boller. I was, so I phoned the cabinet office, no word of a lie. On the Monday morning, I phoned the cabinet office and this really confused civil servant picked up the phone. <laughs> and I, I mean, I said something like, I just received a letter from you saying that, you know, I'm being awarded an MBE. And I just want to be absolutely sure that you've got the right from Kevin Poller. And he went, Madam, yes, you are the right. I mean, he just said, he said, he said, I have to say that people generally don't phone like this and query it. They tend to want to know when's the investiture happening? Is it going to be Prince Charles or the Queen? You know, I was actually calling to check it was actually meant to be me. Yeah. And then you have to keep it quiet for six weeks, Mike. That's the thing mm. they say. Don't tell anyone. Uh, I told a few close family members. I can't lie because, I mean, it was just too exciting to yeah. keep. And then the list is announced. And every, I mean, the world and the aunt and uncle and, you know, the congratulations that flood in are, you know, overwhelming. Um, Proud moment. Lots. It was, it's, and then you have the investiture a few months later. So, Mine was at Buckingham Palace. It was Prince Charles, mm -hmm. now King mm -hmm. Charles. I, I was very cheeky, actually, when I met him. And because uh, I always like to have put in a special ask whenever I meet senior leaders. And I said, oh, you haven't had a, a reception at Clarence House for a while. You know, it'd be really nice to host some <laughs> of us from the, you know, the diaspora, you know. Uh, and he went, oh, yeah, 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 you know, I'll, I'll look into it. Imagine my shock when I then received an invite eight months later to a reception at Clarence House. Oh, wow. That's amazing. Uh, and I, I was, you know, photographed both times. There's pictures of me yeah. shaking hands. And he remembered me because I was wearing, you know, quite a distinctive outfit yeah. for the investiture. And he congratulated me again. You know, I met his wife. And so the whole thing, you know, it just carries on and on and on. It opened yeah. up, you know, so many doors. More doors. Elevated yeah. my work. It's surreal, but a real honor. Truly is an honor to receive one of those. Incredible. What a real, 
Yeah, that is amazing. It really is. I'm sure you and your family are extremely proud. Who did you go to the palace with? So I went with my partner, um, my son, Max, Mm -hmm. um, my mum. You're only allowed three guests. Okay. So, um, yeah, so I went with my now now ex-partner, but I went with my partner (laughs) at the time. Um, And we have lots of pictures and... Uh, it was interesting because Ed Sheeran was also receiving his MBE oh. on the same day. So we were sort of having drinks together because they separate yeah. you out. You know, the MBEs and OBEs are in one room. Right. And the knighthoods and the damehoods uh, and the CBs are in a separate section right. of, you know, that part of Buckingham Palace. And there was Ed Sheeran, you know, so I uh, chatted to him for a while. And Oh, amazing. Uh, it was remarkable. Just yeah. I still remember it like it was yesterday and it was six years yeah. ago, you know. Now, Obviously, as well as the MBE, you have also received two doctorates. I have, Tell me, what do, yes. What do people call you? Are you doctor? Are you professor? Are you mom? <laughs> so I'm, what do I'm we both call prof- you? <laughs> That's really good. So I'm both professor and doctor because mm. I, I'm a professor of practice at my old former university, Newcastle mm. University. Uh, and because these are all honorary titles – I'm entitled to call myself Professor Doctor. Um, if you've right. gone through the academic route, calling yourself Professor it means you must have gotten a, a doctorate mm-hmm. to get there. So, so the Professor of Practice role is a separate thing completely to the two honorary doctorates. But again, you know, the doctorates were graduation ceremonies, was lots of pomp, and mm-hmm. yeah. I had to give speeches at both of them. And, you know, again, most unexpected, both of them. Um, I was put forward by people I had no idea that they were <laughs> scurrying around and sending off nomination forms. But I, I take none of this for granted, Mike. You know, I, mm. I just think, wow, no one, I could never have thought this when I was yeah. in law school and, you know, when I was at school that, you know, a few years down the line, this is where I'd be. Never, yeah. never in a million wow. years. Now, earlier on, you mentioned um, your son is 20 years old. He is a software engineer studying computer science. But together, you also have your own global podcast, which is The Power of Privilege and Allyship. Talk a little bit more about that. Yes. So that was, again, something that started small and we never thought would become big. So um, it was during the UK's third lockdown. So January 2021, (laughs) third lockdown. Most unexpected. Christmas had been cancelled. It was all very depressing. Mm. And Max was supposed to be doing his mocks that January, and he'd worked really hard over the Christmas break, and then suddenly they cancelled the mocks. That then had implications for A-level results and university entry and so on. So, you know, my usually very optimistic son, who'd coped with all of the lockdowns until that point, was really, really finding it tough. And I remember we were walking around uh, where we live and lots of people were wandering around in the rather gloomy January weather. (laughs) And um, we decided that we had to do something, have a project, do something that, you know, we could reach out to friends. And my brother kept saying, you know, I'm always guests on other people's podcasts. Why don't you do your own podcast? I mean, you've been saying that for three or four years, Mike, and I'd done nothing about it. (laughs) And we suddenly came up with the idea of the podcast. Um, Max helped me with all the tech and the recording because I was just freaking out, you know, (laughs) how do I record? You know, how does editing work? And yeah, together, I went through all of that. <laughs> well, exactly, Mike. Yeah, we just found a really easy guide online and followed it. Yeah. You know, I said find the easiest guide possible, and we just follow that. And it started off with just eight people. We were only going to interview eight 
uh, people oh. to see us through the third lockdown. And then the mm-hmm. idea was then to stop and then just carry on with life as normal. But they were so popular, the episodes, that people started asking to be interviewed and and we enjoyed it so much. You know, yeah. it became something that when Max went to university, we were able to carry on doing because we record on Zoom. And now we're about to close season six, Mike, and we've wow. interviewed <laughs> over a hundred leaders across every industry you can imagine. The youngest leaders are about 18 and right up to sort of senior leadership, yeah. um, you know, retired, etc. Amazing conversations. We've had Olympic an Olympic rower, we've had leading scientists, doctors, head teachers, you know, university vice chancellors, mm. lots of lawyers. Um, <laughs> former school, you know, school friends that have gone on to do great things. Uh, a very dear friend from law school has been interviewed twice um, because of the work he's doing around mm. all of this. Amazing. Just yeah. such fun and, you know, so good to get the message out there. And actually now people will message me and say, oh, we listened to episode such and such in season mm-hmm. four. And we're now using the, you know, case study there to help yeah. us with this aspect of our DEI policy. And it's global, uh, all, all continents, uh, oh, loads fantastic. of countries, about 1300 cities now, uh, 10,000 downloads hit last week. Wow. So yeah, thrilled. Thank you. Absolutely fantastic. <laughs> Thank so, you. Tell me what is next for you? You've achieved so much in your career to date. Where do you go from here? What's what's next? What's your what's your ambition or aspiration? Yeah, that's a great question. You won't be surprised to hear that I'm a woman who plans. I, I love having a plan <laughs> and a, a vision. So what's next for me? So with the social diversity stuff, it's making sure that we embed the National Work Experience Scheme and that we change government policy because the policy at the moment is that work experience for students is not mandatory. A lot of people don't realize that. So we're working um, with various politicians Mm. through Speakers for Schools to change that policy because otherwise some students are falling behind and it's affecting outcomes. The medical scholarship scheme will carry on growing and, you know, Mm -hmm. we're about to come to the um, deadline for submissions for this year's scholarship run. So I'll be judging that with my siblings and um, we'll be announcing the winners uh, for 2023 throughout October. Within my day job, I'll be focusing on inclusive leadership, you know, Mm -hmm. really, really focusing on how do we drive that, you know, coaching senior leaders, um, you know, really getting to the nub of how do we help them develop these traits and competencies that they need to be an inclusive leader and doing that across all sectors. You know, I do a lot of work within pharmaceuticals, for example, lots within law firms, um, I'm joining another board quite soon that's aligned mm-hmm. to uh, the legal sector, and that will open more conversations as well around yeah. all of this. And then to see where the podcast takes us as well. Takes you, yeah. Oh, that's fantastic. Do you ever do um, inclusive leadership in the ac- academic world, like for students, yeah. universities? and? Yes, yes. Yeah. So um, one of the things that's very exciting that's happening is my book. I've not mentioned mm-hmm. that, actually. Yeah. So I've got a book that's being published uh, in March of next year, but it's currently being proofread, edited. Uh, one of the most painful processes, Mike, uh, ever. I mean, actually, writing 40,000 <laughs> words was a lot wow. easier than the editing process. Um, but it's good to have an editor to help you with it. Mm-hmm. 
Um, so there's a whole global book signing tool around the book launch. Um, my editor has um, submitted um, the book, the first chapter for the New York Times uh, bestseller uh, criteria for 2024 because she feels very strongly that I will sell a certain number of books in the first week of our, our publication uh, in March. And so I'm being considered for, you know, even before we've published uh, the yeah. book, the book's being considered as a New York Times bestseller, which again, as I say that, <laughs> I just find it's the most surreal thing. You know, how did I get yeah. here? Um, so there's going to be over the next 12 months, starting from early December, um, a series of you know, me, me traveling to key parts of the world right. uh, to deliver um, my keynote talk, Climbing Mountains, and then to talk about my book, which is called Climbing Mountains right. as well. Fantastic. Like we have, we've come to the end of, of the show. I just wondered if you have any last words of wisdom or something you'd like to, to say. I always like to finish with a quote by Denzel Washington, actually. So he's my favorite mm -hmm. actor, hands down. I think he's just exceptional. <laughs> and he had a lot to say about what it takes to succeed in life. And, and mm. he has many quotes around this. But the one that really stands out for me is, what he said around commitment and consistency. So he said, with, without commitment, you will never start. But without mm. consistency, you'll never finish. And I think I want to leave everyone with that because everything I've achieved, I've stayed the course. I mean, it's been tough. You know, there have been times when yeah. I've often wondered, why am I bothering? I mean, good days, bad days. Uh, you know, when you're in the arena, as Brene Brown says, there are plenty of people in the cheap Jeez. seats who are throwing rocks at you and uh, yelling abuse and, you know, accusing of you of all sorts of things. And, you know, there are people who are throwing rocks when you're just walking to the arena. Talk mm. less once you're in it. So, you know, it's very tough being visible in front of stage and driving this change. But you have to remember your why, as Simon Sinek mm -hmm. says. I always yeah. remind myself, why am I doing this? And actually, what's at stake if I stop doing this? And that's what makes me carry on. That gives me the impetus to carry on. So that's what I'd leave everyone with. Oh, thank you so much. Funke, it has been a real pleasure talking to you, listening to your words of wisdom, listening to all the things that you've achieved. And... I'm blown away. <laughs> I know that we will, you know, remain in touch and yes. things like that. But, um, you know, I wish you every success with everything that you've got ahead of you, particularly with, you know, the climbing mountains and, and what's to come. And I'm waiting for that book to come out. So I will, <laughs> I will purchase it and read it and thank learn from you. it. But, um, yes, thank you so much for agreeing to join me on the show. And as I said, I wish you every success in the future. Thank you so much, Mike. It's been my pleasure. Thank you. Take care and bye for now. listening to this episode of diversity matters if you liked what you heard then be sure to hit like and subscribe and we'll see you next time